Welcome back, everyone, to the Flight Test Safety Podcast. Yes, it has only been a week since the last one, which means you get to hear part three of Battle of the X-Pilots, while part two is still fresh in your mind. Now, if you missed parts one or two, the links are in the podcast description. This has been a fun series looking back at flight testing the X-32 and the X-35 with my good friend, Jeff Pigpen Carnes. We've shared a lot of what happened in the public view, what happened behind the scenes, and the thought process that went into planning and executing the test program for these unique aircraft. But let's start with a little bit of aviation history. And this one is specific to flight tests. The year is 1945, the 3rd of December, and the first landing and takeoff aboard an aircraft carrier by a jet-powered aircraft was made by Lieutenant Commander Eric Melrose Brown, also known as Winkle who was Chief Naval Test Pilot at Farnborough. The aircraft was a de Havilland DH-100 Sea Vampire Mark 10, and the ship was the Royal Navy Colossus-class light aircraft carrier HMS Ocean. Now, how did Winkle Brown get selected to be that first test pilot to operate a jet from a carrier? Well, I'll tell you. No, wait, better yet, I will let him tell you. I also wanted to ask you uh, how you were selected for the world's first landing of a, a jet aircraft, the de Havilland Sea Vampire, on the uh, HMS Ocean. That must have been quite an experience. Yes, very much so. But there were two factors involved. One was, at that time, I was the most experienced deck landing pilot in the world. And also, I was the only naval officer in the world that had flown a jet aircraft. So the two things almost made it, you know, an eventuality. Now that excerpt is taken from the SCTP Oral Histories, which you can listen to in its entirety by following the link in the podcast description. And while you're there, check out some of the other oral histories currently available. Now, Captain Eric Brown, Winkle, was retired from active duty in 12 March 1970. At that time, he had accumulated more than 18,000 flight hours with over 8,000 hours as a test pilot. He had flown 487 different types of aircraft, not variants, types, a record which is unlikely ever to be broken. Winkle Brown made more landing on aircraft carriers than any other pilot with 2,407 landings fixed wing, 212 landings helicopter. He made over 2,700 catapult launches, both at sea and on land. Eric Winkle Brown unfortunately died at Red Hill, Surrey, England on the 21st of February, 2016 at the age of 97. I actually had the privilege of meeting him at an SCTP symposium before he passed. A truly amazing individual. Okay, this month we are going to pick up with part three of Battle of the X-Pilots. And we've covered a lot of ground so far. and In this episode, we are going to talk about something truly unique. Now, there's a lot that goes into making a jet aircraft fly. But making one hover in midair? Well, that's... I was going to say magical... But there is science behind it, of course. Complex science. Lots of equations and all that. And of course, it requires exceptional piloting skills. Or at least that's what Harrier pilots tell people. But here is one of the interesting things when you talk about flight testing a short takeoff and vertical landing aircraft. Do you start slow or zero with a vertical takeoff to a hover and build up? Or do you build down in speed to a hover or zero and then a vertical landing? I'll give you a minute to think about it. And the answer is, well, that is a topic for this month's focus. 
that's the, the cross-country particular piece. Now, Pigman, let's talk about uh, our favorite of the, of the versions of the airplane, the Stovall airplanes, and, and how we uh, approach getting our airplanes you know, through the speed regime of, of zero knots to, to high speed and sort of the, you know, the build-up and or build-down process that was employed by each team. And I'll, I'll let you go first for X-32. Okay. Well, I mean, if, if you're going to test a stolen airplane, you know, the, the big first question is, how do you do the envelope expansion? Do you press up and start accelerating, or do you start in wingborne flight and decelerate till a hover and do a landing? So I guess since the days of the Harrier uh, back at Bedford, that's been the, the big question of how to do it. They, they kind of did press up tethered hover, which I think we all agree that that's, that's not the way to go, and they abandoned that pretty quickly. Um, you know, and then finally they did a press-up and, and a build-down kind of approach. Um, that's, you know, which way is the best way? Uh, it kind of depends on your configuration and what you know and your performance modeling. Uh, I think, obviously, Pax River, the government invested in making this hover pit, uh, at Pax River so that the contractors could use it, you know, whether they wanted to do a press-up or do a, do a vertical landing yeah, and, on it. And Big Ben, can you just d- describe for the audience what a hover pit is for those who are not familiar? <laughs> yes, I was about to get to that. So basically, it's a big hole in the ground. And when you're doing a stolen flight test, you need to remove as many variables as you can to define what your hover performance and your handling qualities in semi-jetborne and jetborne flight are. And as, as a Stovall airplane gets near the ground, um, it, it's a very complex uh, events that take place. Some of those variables are, are jet-induced, uh, uh, including hot gas ingestion, and that's just the flow of hot gas out of your engine coming back into your intake, and then the delta temperature is removed, and you don't have the hover performance anymore. There's also suck down, in which case if your uh, jet pillars are going down away from the aircraft, it it causes negative pressure underneath the wing, and you actually get sucked down into the ground. Uh, And then finally, there's the pillar effect, where if you have, you know, plumes of thrust going down, hitting the ground, and then fanning out, well, a portion of that fan hits each other uh, from the other pillar and then is directed as a fountain back to the underside of the aircraft, which is, is good because it could counteract the uh, suck-down effect, but it's bad in because the direction of the pillar and the size of the pillar changes with altitude, and it's impacted by your, your nozzle design uh, plus wind, plus, um, you know, the slope of the ground. Right. So maybe it induces a right-wing roll up high, and as you get near the ground, it changes, and it'll be a, a left-wing roll. So all, all those uh, variables are just too much uh, to handle. So you want to remove them when you're, when you're finding out your capabilities, your aircraft. So you dig a big hole in the ground, and then you have a big tunnel at the back of the hole, and it's supposed to take all those jet effects and, and throw them out the back door, so to speak, so that you can find out your handling quality and performance without the effects of those. Of course, that, that's, that's what the glossy brochure says. <laughs> uh, what, what really happens is who knows, right? There's a lot of black magic in, in Stovall 
do it uh, on the next 32 changed with time. Uh, nobody was sold on one way or another initially. But as we learn more about our design and and understanding what we didn't know, it was decided it was best to decelerate into a hover uh, from conventional to, to vertical lift. Uh, and the reason, probably the biggest reason, was the performance uncertainty. Uh, Pratt & Whitney uh, was kind of new to Stovall design, and, and so they didn't understand the precision of performance prediction that, that we were really after. So there was uh, several thousand pounds of uncertainty on how much thrust we were going to have in the hover. And when you have the, that kind of uncertainty, you can't just pop up vertically. Uh, it's better to do uh, build down in 10 nautical increments, see what the handling qualities are, and see what kind of thrust margin that remained to make sure that you had enough thrust to overcome the instability and do a vertical landing. So that's kind of the reason behind uh, why it was chosen on the X-32, that we'd, we'd start conventional and work ourselves down to a hover. And, and so we did that at Pax River, built down in 10 knot increments, and uh, finally, um, uh, shoot, it was, I guess, in zero 01, spring of zero 01, uh, Dennis Adani, who had the, the final sortie to knock off the, the last uh, 10 knot increments, come to a hover. Uh, we did a, you know, normal uh, lateral translations up and down the runway, pedal turns, pitch attitude captures, all those things to say we had the handling qualities and precision. And then we nozzled out, got some more fuel, and then he came to a hover uh, 150 feet over the uh, the pit. And uh, our plan was, you know, stabilize, make sure you're happy, then clear him down to 100 feet, clear him down to 50 feet, and then clear to land. Of course, execution, there's things you find out about that you didn't. Uh, came to hover. I was in the control room uh, monitoring the engine performance with the with the rest of the engineers, and um, Stoney was out in the LSO truck monitoring from below. Come to 150 foot hover, no problem. Cleared him down to 100, and then as he was approaching 100 feet, uh, I hear Stoney saying, "Stabilize, power, power," and uh, Dennis reports, uh, "We're landing." Uh, <laughs> so we basically ran out of slits. Uh, and, and kept coming down. Now, you know, it was a controlled descent, but he had no ability to stabilize um, and came down to 350 feet. Then about a 30 feet, he started getting uh, engine control again or, you know, ex excess performance, and he was able to cushion the landing. And uh, at that moment, we determined that we'll never use the pit again. Um, <laughs> as well as, you know, we sat there and, and discussed it a little bit, and uh determined that the, the infinite uh, flow removal at the pit wasn't acting as it should have up at 150 or 100 feet. Basically, it was taking all the hot gas, putting it in the hole, throwing it to the edges of the hole, and then directing it right back into the intake. So that was the cause of the thrust deficit that he, that he couldn't control uh, on the descent. And then once he got to below 50 feet, now the entrainment of all the, the mass flow was being sent out the back of the tunnel, so he regained that free air hover capability again and landed. Uh, but like I said, it was determined that nobody ever wants to see that again, uh, so the next vertical landing was to the pad, which was next to the pit, 
and then all subsequent uh, landings were to the the pad. And I, to my knowledge, the the pit was never used again. I guess it's a relic at the uh, at Patch River, big hole in the ground. Yeah, for both of us, you know, having uh, done show and tell for that pit when there wasn't other very much else to talk about in the early days. Um, that pit, when we say big, uh, you know, you could play laser tag in that pit. That's how big that it was. So, uh, all right. So I'll, I'll, I'll give a little bit of, uh, the other side from the X 35, um, all of what you said, you know, I think really what it came down to when deciding which sort of methodology or which approach you were going to take, whether the, you know, press up to a hover and then do the build down or, or vice versa, um, it, it, part of it really came down to, you know, just how much confidence did you have in your installed thrust predictions, right? Uh, for the LM team, I think the decision was made pretty early on that we were going to start off with a press-up for the airplane. Uh, and I, I say that because they built a, a much smaller pit at the facility there, at the Lockheed facility there in Palmdale, Um and when I say smaller, you know, the, the pit at Pax River, you had enough uh, space uh, over the grate there to kind of maneuver the airplane a little bit. Uh, the pit in Palmdale was about the size of the airplane, which, you know, that doesn't sound like a big deal because all you're going to do is press up and go straight up. Uh, but one of the, the hazards is, and again, and this came from the engineers, and I, and I, I tend to believe what those folks say, is uh, when they described what could happen if you had half of the airplane over the pit, so one pillar of thrust over the pit, and the other half of the airplane not over the pit, so over the solid ground, so the other pillar over the solid ground, um, their, their, uh, their description of that was bad. Bad things could happen. So that was you know simple marine speak for me to understand that you didn't want to do that. So one of the hazards we had to deal with operating off that smaller pit in Palmdale was the fact that there really wasn't uh, much margin to have the airplane move once you started going up. Uh, Lockheed was able to get a pretty good handle on the install thrust through some of the uh, engine run things they did. Uh, One of the things I thought was really creative was they replaced the landing gear with uh, what was, you know, giant force gauges, so basically giant springs that could measure force and uh, bolted the airplane and those things to the pit and were able to run at max power in the vertical configuration to try to get a better feel for that install thrust. So there was a little bit of confidence going into that first press-up uh, of understanding what, what the airplane performance was going to be. Um, the other thing, you know, is very different in the design between X-35 and X-32. Um, if you've ever seen uh, the F-35 go through its conversion process from conventional to uh, Stovall mode, you'll notice there's a, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things happening as uh, doors uh, above the airplane and below the airplane open as the uh, lift fan and the shaft that drives it engages and the clutch spins up. So th- there's a lot of things happening. So having all of that stuff happen on the ground the first times in the control mode over the hover pit, um, I think was, was also part of our risk mitigation. So we understood all those things uh, a little bit before we go went out and tried to do those in flight. 
But for for the X-35, the very first flight it did was uh, a press-up from the hover pit at Palmdale. And again, uh, it gave us sort of that out-of-ground effect hover information that would build the confidence so that when we went out and did the subsequent flying of coming down in speed to, to get to the hover, we at least knew that that endpoint of zero, we had high confidence in that endpoint. But, you know, we some of the other risk mitigations that, you know, went into the hover pit, you know, Pigpen, you mentioned that we had an LSO or observer out there, someone on the ground who could observe your airplane and, and provide um, additional guidance and direction to the pilot, uh, especially at those high altitude hovers where you probably couldn't see the confines of the either the pad or the pit. Um, we had a, we had some big discussions, and this is one of those those joint discussions where both teams were, were sharing information. When we started talking about what would be some of the visual markings that could be beneficial, you know, where do you put those markings? How far do they run out from the the hover pad or the hover pit? Um, you know, with the barrels we talked about, painted lines on the ground, a lot of different things. And, and fortunately, we only had to deal with doing that stuff in the daytime and not worrying about how to figure to do how to do that stuff at night. One other uh, discussion, safety-wise, going into the pit. So, you know, before we came to the hover and our, and our first vertical landing, we used the uh, the big pit at Pax River as an engine run stand. Basically, you could, you know, if you pulled your engine, you could go do an engine run with the nozzles down, and you wouldn't damage the surface around the, uh, you know, the tarmac. And uh, so we did use it, uh, but that can go horribly bad too. I know we renamed the pit the, uh, the Dennis uh, Donahue uh, Barbecue Pit. Uh, you had an X-32 on there after an engine change, and we just, he was just doing a uh, high-power engine run. And the afterburner fuel line coupler let go. And, um, you know, for all the, the jet guys, the fuel flow on the afterburner is, is uh, kind of amazing. Uh, well, all that was getting pumped onto the hot nozzle, uh, and then it dripped off the hot nozzle into the pit and was basically making a fuel uh, swimming pool. Uh, of course, uh, luckily, uh, nothing happened. Uh, I was able to shut down the uh, the engine and exit the airplane before things got bad, but it could have ended up just being a, a, a X-32 barbecue. Uh, so you, you just never know what's going to happen in flight tests. <laughs> All right, Pigman. So we'll, we'll end it there. And then again, we may revisit some of the other stories and maybe we'll share with the audience at some future date uh, some of our lessons learned from uh, how to deal with being trapped in a medieval city uh, after dark. But uh, hey, let me ask you. So one last thing. When you look back on the early days of JSF, um, is there anything unique or particularly unique that stands out in your mind about how, how anything we how we approach, you know, safely testing those sort of brand new one-of-a-kind airplanes and and getting you know to those you know not only just the the first flights of the airplanes but i mean every flight in those er, those airplanes was almost like a first flight because we were doing something new almost every time anything that stands out in your mind uh, from a safety perspective of of something unique or and, and maybe that you've carried with you from that day forward yeah, I'd say it's it's probably no different than any other flight test uh, that you do. The, the biggest thing is the people, right? Um, you have to have open mind, uh, 
solutions, develop and execute. Um, and it's more than anything, it's, it's who you work with. It's being comfortable and being honest and having leadership that, that lets you do the important things, make the tough decisions, and don't put pressure on about time or location, which is, is probably the same thing every test team goes through on a daily basis, but it's, it's really important when every day is, is a new um, investigation, a new point. It's the people you surround your team with or make up the team with, and it's the leadership over the top of you. Yeah, and, you know, I actually, I was going to say, my mind's kind of on a similar path. You know, I watched at least two distinct uses of the no vote, and I think, you know, I, I we talk about using the no vote. I, I had learned that in all of my training in my aviation career prior to getting involved with JSF. But I think what, what I walked away from is, you know, just being convinced that is important. Um, it can save the day uh, and, and you can do it in a big program when there's big pressure. Um, and you just have to have an environment where it's allowed, right? And, and I think the government and contractor team, to their credit, on, on both sides, on the Boeing and Lockheed, created those environments where everyone on the team believed that they truly did have the power to exercise the no vote if they didn't like what they saw. Fully agree with that. Yeah. All right, Pig Ben. Hey, thanks, buddy. It was great to reminisce about the, the old days. And again, uh, we'll see how this goes. And we may have to come back for, a, for a, another episode or two in the future. Excellent. I'll, I'm always available. Pigpen and I talked, we left the door open to continue this series as there are many more things we can talk about, but we'll save that for future episodes. This will actually wrap up the podcast for 2023. I'm going to enjoy a break from podcastry over the holidays. We'll pick up again in January with episode 50. Wow. I initially signed up to try doing this for a year, and now we're up to 50 episodes. I want to thank everyone for tuning in each month and for the positive feedback you have provided. Please continue to send ideas and comments my way and let others know about this product the Flight Test Safety Committee provides. I wish everyone a safe and enjoyable holiday season and a happy new year. And until next time, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.